I say this a lot at Gospel Life Church. And you know, um, ironically, I say it, and I think people struggle to believe it at first. You know, um, one of the things you'll hear me say is that true things are often unintuitive, counterintuitive. We hear them and they don't make sense to our ears, okay? So I say it a lot, but because of the text we're in this morning, I think it's helpful to start by demonstrating the truthfulness of that statement. Even though we say it, we hear it, and we're not sure that that's the case. Okay, um, what I mean by it is, you know, in our way of thinking about an issue, what we think might be good or useful often turns out to be exactly that which we shouldn't have done. You know, we come to find that our, our intuition often leads us astray, so it's not good enough, you know, it's not good enough to simply enter into a debate on any issue and, and merely say, well, use your common sense. Because the idea, you know, I hear it a lot, and I understand the sentiment. Well, you know, we need to be about common sense. Someone's common sense is going to be wrapped up in an awful lot of things outside of data. You know, you, your common sense can be shaped by who raised you, the culture that you primarily identify with, and oftentimes things that are common sense to you, someone who comes from a different world, you might hear that, and it's the exact opposite for them. Oftentimes, common sense for you can actually be outside of the sphere of truth. And we can actually demonstrate why that's the case, why our intuition can lead us astray. We can see why. So let me show you a couple of examples. Well, let me show you one example and one illustration, because I had more examples, but we don't have time for it in my introduction. So um, if, you, if you want more mind-blowing examples as to how our intuition leads us astray, come to the Q&A so I don't have to waste my introductory material. Okay, let's start with the birthday paradox. You're probably familiar with this one, but here's the question. How many people do you need to get together in a room before you can find any two people who share the same birthday? Our intuition typically tells us you need a lot of people to have, you know, high odds, you know, um, of finding birthday buddies. So there are 365 days in a year, right? So if you're, you're to gather, say, 23 random people into a room, our intuition tells us the odds wouldn't be very high that you'd find a birthday buddy in that group, that you'd find birthday buddies in that group. But that's not the case. The birthday paradox states that in a room of 23 people, there's a 50-50 chance that any of the two of them will share a birthday. Now, that might sound unintuitive to you. You might already know the answer, right? So, um, you, might, you might be aware of this, but if you're like me and that sounds like, oh, that doesn't quite sound right, don't send your email to me tomorrow morning. Send it to the Scientific American. You can Google it. Uh, this is absolutely true, but we call it a paradox. It's not actually a paradox. We call it that because it's unintuitive. Why is it unintuitive to our ears? Well, for a foundational reason that then leads us to misunderstand the problem. Okay, so two reasons. Number one, we tend to think more of ourselves than we should. We're a little self-centered, okay? And so we tend to think our birthdays are more special than that. Your birthdays are special. We tend to think that our birthdays are more, more st statistically rare than they actually are, okay? And so because of that, we think in a room of 23 people, well, there are only 22 comparisons between me and the other, two 20, the other 22 people in the room. So it'd be really hard to find two people with matching birthdays. But this isn't the case, though. It's not 22 comparisons. It's each person comparing their own birthday 
to 22 people, which is actually 253 comparisons, and that makes for a probability of finding birthday buddies in a room of 23 about 50%. In a room of 60 people, 99.9% .9 chance that you will find two people that share the same birthday. There, there are a lot of examples like this. Got a few more, but we don't have time. Let me give you a, an illustration of the same problem. It's the same scientific explanation, like related to why we misunderstand a lot of problems, but it's the same scientific explanation related to why we fall into conspiracy theories. In any moment in history across the political spectrum, why do we get so hyped up in conspiracy? Well, because we, we think too much of our time, we think too much of ourselves, we're a little self-centered this way, we attribute more significance to our historical moment than we should. There's this great address, Ben Sass, a PhD in history, former senator from Nebraska. He was addressing Gospel Coalition a few years ago, and he's a historian. He says, as a historian, one of the things that we see across history is that everyone in every age thinks that the moment of history that they're in is more, they attach more significance to that one. Like, this one's more significant. So because of that, when something major happens, you know, especially, but not limited to, especially if it's one of those events where you remember where you were, JFK assassination, 9-11 kind of thing, we think it must be because of something big or nefarious, because we attach too much significance to our times. Our, our minds have a hard time making sense of something like that because of how much significance we attach to our own Time. Um, our minds have a hard time not over-signifying us. We think we're that special. We have a hard time not making too much of ourselves. And that leads us to uh, making mistakes across the spectrum. And, and in our text this morning, Jesus is talking to a man who makes the same mistake because he has the same problem. Jesus makes a statement that sounds utterly unintuitive to this man. So... Um, this man's retort is full of scorn toward the whole idea. He mocks it because it sounds so backwards to his ears, but he's mocking the truth. And the reason he can't see it is because he's made a living, pretty good living, making too much out of himself than he should. So turn to John chapter 2. There's more to it than that, but turn to John 2, and it's perfect timing for us to set our eyes on this set of scripture as we begin Holy Week, because here in Chapter 2, Jesus has entered Jerusalem for Passover, which is precisely what he'll do two years from this moment on his way to the cross. He'll enter Jerusalem for Passover in two years from this text on the way to the cross. And this section of John's narrative actually foreshadows that moment. And it shows us centrally why Jesus would enter again into Jerusalem two years later with the purpose of his own death. Why did he come to do this? First century Jews had no category for a, a dying, much less rising Messiah. So what was Jesus coming to accomplish? And in order to understand those things, we need to understand the problem that leads to Christ's passion. I'm sorry for not having um, sermon notes or a sermon title for you. The title of the sermon this morning is The Problem and the Passion, Part 1. Two parts, this morning and Good Friday. The problem and the passion, part one. The passion narratives in Scripture simply refers to all of the events of Holy Week that lead to the cross. And I think this text of Scripture shows us that there's this problem that Jesus has come to address and to make right. And, you know, if you don't understand the nature of that problem, 
you won't understand the events of Holy Week. You won't understand what the scriptures have to say about Holy Week. So this morning we're looking together at three aspects of the problem leading to Christ's passion. Three aspects of the problem that lead Christ to enter into Jerusalem toward the cross, setting his face to the cross. So let's start with the problem identified. The problem identified, the problem exemplified, the problem rectified, if you're taking notes. So let's start with the problem identified. Chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So as we saw last week, right, Jesus made his way into Jerusalem at Passover. He makes a whip out of cords. He drives out the money changers from their, uh, from their tables. He declares why he uniquely has authority to cleanse the temple of false worship. And if you want to know more about that, I want to direct you back to Paul's great teaching from last week in our podcast. Really thankful that Paul Burr um, stepped into the pulpit last night to preach. But the point our text this morning makes is that there are those who apparently have observed this. They've observed Jesus' signs and even his authority and clearing out the temple. They profess belief in his name as a result of seeing these things. So far, so good, right? I mean, we said two weeks ago that John really is shepherding his readers to see that the only appropriate response to Jesus is faith. That's why at the end of the sign that he performs in Cana of, in Galilee, Turning the water to wine, John concludes the section this way in verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him, right? The, the only appropriate response to Jesus is faith. And it's precisely what the sign he performed points us to, placing our faith in him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So if you have questions about that, go back two weeks ago and, and listen to that as well. But here in verse 23, many people believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So what's the problem? Well, it might be surprising to us. Verses 24 to 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These um, two verses are surprising to the reader. Intentionally so. They're surprising to the reader. And I would say that they're surprising to us, I think, as Luke's account of Palm Sunday has much the same idea in mind, in which Jesus rides into Jerusalem, crowds waving palm branches, saying Hosanna, which means save now, and the Pharisees attempt to rebuke him and his followers by telling them, these people shouldn't be saying this and you shouldn't be encouraging it. The religious leaders know that the words that these people are shouting have messianic overtones, claiming Jesus to be the promised one, come to save. And Jesus responds to the religious leaders saying, listen, if they don't cry out, the rocks will cry out. Okay. In other words, he is this promised one, come to save. That is who he is, but then Luke's narrative takes this surprising turn. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. But wait a minute. Would that you, even you, would know this day the things that make for peace? Don't they know? Aren't they crying out, Hosanna? Aren't they crying out? 
for Jesus to save? They're speaking better than they know. They're giving a kingly welcome. They're utilizing messianic imagery. There's an acknowledgement of belief from this crowd, the crowd of Palm Sunday, probably made up as a mixture of both people from the surrounding regions, uh, pilgrims making their way into Jerusalem for Passover, as well as those who had heard, like the religious leaders, that Jesus is coming into the city and they come out to welcome him. And they professed belief in true realities related to who Jesus himself is, the Messiah. And yet Jesus is able to discern beyond the profession of faith down to the very motives of the crowd in the first place. They're crying out to Jesus because of what they believe he will do for them in toppling the Roman Empire in Jerusalem and bringing an end to foreign rule and oppression. They fundamentally misunderstand what makes for peace because they misunderstand the problem. They fundamentally misunderstand Jesus because at least part of what they want in Jesus is Jesus as the leader of a power religion. And we'll have more to say on that in a bit. So they've heard, they've seen or heard about the signs he's performed, so they cry out in belief, and yet Jesus discerns down to their very hearts as he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And in an almost foreshadowing kind of way, upon entering Jerusalem this first time at Passover, probably two years earlier here in chapter 2, here he also hears professions of faith on the basis of the signs that he's accomplished, but he does not entrust himself to them. And for the same reason. You know, other religious leaders might be seduced by flattery. They might enjoy all the attention, the words of praise, you know, that they're receiving from others to the extent that they don't see what's actually happening. But this isn't the case with Jesus. Do we remember? He's the eternally preexistent word, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving glory to one another from eternity past. He needs not men's praise. He doesn't come in deficient. And he also, because he's creator and their creation, doesn't need anybody to give him testimony about who mankind is in order to understand humanity. So listen to how John portrays Jesus. There's a kind of play on words. Because this word entrust is repeated actually a couple of different times, the same word. So that the effect of the language essentially is this. The people trusted in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because they didn't actually trust him. Yeah, John wants to shepherd us toward the only appropriate response to Jesus, which is faith. That's the same word for belief in verse 11, as is used here at the end of chapter 2. The right belief that he's shepherding people to in verse 11 on the part of his disciples versus this kind of spurious belief from the, the surrounding crowds at the end of chapter 2. It's the same word used, but it all hinges on the context. This crowd doesn't actually trust in him. This is the problem identified. It's depravity. It goes much further than they realize. See, these people know that, that sin is a problem in the text, all right? Like, their entire temple system is based around the idea of atonement for sin. So they know that sin is a problem, but they don't think it's their central problem, or at the very least, they think it's a problem that they can deal with by holding to the law and the stipulations that were given to them in the law. So from their perspective, the sin issue is kind of handled. Because they can follow the law. They were given the law to handle the sin issue. And what's wrong with those who can't? 
okay? They can save themselves from that problem with the Lord's help in revealing the law to them, okay? It's not their central problem. Their central problem isn't about sin so far as they're concerned, but rather power. Their central problem is a power problem. They want power. They've seen Jesus perform signs. They've seen Jesus exercise a kind of authority that enables him to clear out the temple in his Father's name. And they're like, can I get in on that? Can I get some of this power? They fundamentally misunderstand Jesus because what they want, at least in part, is some kind of power religion. Like the crowds on Palm Sunday. And it's, it's way, guys, it's way too easy at this point, to disconnect ourselves from the application of this text and say, well, yeah, that was their problem, you know, because it's first century Jerusalem. They were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. That's not the time that we live in. This isn't the problem the church faces today. This isn't the way the church talks today, but I beg to differ. When what we preach, you know, when what... When what we lay out as the very center of Christianity, the very center of our ministries, is either primarily geared around preserving some kind of power or right that we have in our culture against those with whom we disagree that we see as our enemies to topple those enemies, or when what we preach, when what we lay out as the center of our ministry, the center of Christianity, is primarily geared around a concept of oppression and injustice as the surrounding culture defines those terms and how to topple those who oppress us. You know, if either of those become, become the center of the church and the purpose of the church rather than the gospel, which is happening in Western churches right now, all across the United States, we're... When that happens, we've misunderstood Jesus because what we want is some kind of power religion. And make no mistake, listen, that's what both sides are after. You know, when, when our sermons are, are either entitled, you know, if they're entitled, Big Government Enslaves a People, and that's a real sermon title, okay? Or, Unjust Oppression Enslaves a People. And, you know, and here's how Christianity will help you topple big government. Or here's how your Christianity will help you topple those who oppress you. Rather than our sermons being entitled, Sin Enslaves a People, You, Us. And here's how Jesus came to deal with the sin of the world. And here's how, through what he has done, and not anything that you could ever do for yourself because sin is everyone's problem and it levels the playing field, here's how you can know God. When When we bypass that message for those other two, we've essentially decided to use the same playbook as these spurious first century Christians, or Jews. Here in this text, they were preaching Roman government enslaves the people. They were preaching Roman government unjustly oppresses, right? Instead of sin enslaves the people. And you know what? It was true. What they were saying was true. Roman government enslaved them. And it was true that they were unjustly oppressed. But the word became flesh to deal with the problem underneath all those problems, you know? And the mission of the church is to make who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do central, not what we think he should be doing in our context to those with whom we disagree. Again, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't preach against specific societal ills and evils. Of course we should. And of course, you know, Of course, in our time, 
it's very possible for government to do things, to legislate in such a way that is evil. And it's very possible for people to be unjustly oppressed. And that's sinful. Racism is sinful. And of course we need to call it out because the Bible calls all of that out. But all of this flows out of the gospel of Christ's death on our behalf because, listen to me, if anything that we proclaim as a church is untethered from that reality, and if it's untethered in any way, we'll lose the very things that we're fighting for. I promise you. I promise you. I guarantee it. We'll lose the very things that we think are so important to fight, to stand and fight for, because they are, okay, but we lose them. If they're untethered in any way from the cross, if they don't directly flow out of the cross, if they don't directly level the playing field by me understanding the problem of my sin, right, we, we will lose that every day of the week. I guarantee you. This is the most significant ecclesial error of our time. We fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the problem, so we fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the purpose of the church. And, and, and you know, this is why the Gospels aren't primarily meant to give us profiles on, on discipleship. Because here's the kicker as it relates to depravity. Not only do these people fail to understand Jesus, you know, but as we'll see, without the Spirit revealing him to us, they can't understand him. Like, their problem is that they're in complete and utter need for him to do for them what they can't do for themselves. Like, they are spiritually empty. That's the nature of depravity. It's spiritual bankruptcy. But we're getting our, ahead of ourselves a bit because that's what really brings us from the problem identified, which is depravity, to now the problem exemplified in Nicodemus. Nicodemus becomes a real-time example of this problem right out of the gate. So let me read verses 24 to 25 again, but then go directly into verse 1 so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. You can see how John makes this connection. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man. Do you see this? See the play on words? He himself knew what was in man, and there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. Now, in this sense, I really think Nicodemus becomes grammatically the, the first of a few immediate examples of what John is talking about. Jesus is about to have all kinds of encounters with people uh, with varying backgrounds in the text. But let's not go there yet. Let's stay here. Because it's likely surprising to the readers that the most immediate and obvious example of the problem flowing out of the end of chapter 2 would be this particular man. Here we have a distinguished teacher from the Pharisees. He's, he's the problem? Well, let's look at the nature of the encounter. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So, okay, in this text we have some similarities between Nicodemus and the crowd at the end of chapter 2 who claims some kind of belief. Because here in, here in Nicodemus also, you know, he claims some level of belief. And while these words do convey an appearance of openness to truth that I think is genuine, you know, as John continues in his account, it seems that Nicodemus becomes more and more open to truth, right? But um, John is using some words here in a way that allows us as readers to see Nicodemus 
in the way that Jesus sees those people to discern what's happening under, under the conversation. Like Jesus does at the end of chapter 2. So how do we see that? Well, first, Nicodemus visits Jesus by night. I've talked about this at length earlier in sermons in John as, as the classic example in John of, of writing, because he does this so often, both a historical detail, this meeting actually occurred at night, while giving us something of a double meaning, because listen to how John uses night throughout the rest of his account, right before healing the man born blind in chapter 9. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And then before he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus answered, are, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks, uh, walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And here we have G Nicodemus walking to Jesus by night. The light not being present. You know, to top it off, when Judas goes out to betray Jesus, uh, in John ch chapter 13, John records it this way. So after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Right, so this is the idea. I think we have here in John a recording of the reality of when it's happening, but the reason he includes this detail the reason it's relevant to the discussion is because it's demonstrating something of the reality of Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus isn't even aware of the state of his heart or the reality of the dark night within him. But Jesus is. But we also get a sense, you know, if, if that seems like it's a bit much. We get, we, we get a sense of that reality even in his opening question that isn't really a question. And that's kind of the problem. Nicodemus asks a question that's not really a question. Certainly you've seen situations, right, in which someone asks a question and you can kind of see, you see it in the press pool all the time. Someone asks a question, but the purpose of the question is to demonstrate how much you know, not to gain information. You know, it says more about the asker uh, than it does anything else. And so he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So, you know, the, the implied question is, are you more than this? But listen, do you see it? It's not really too subtle. Nicodemus begins with his own knowledge. Rabbi, we know, you know. I don't think there's anybody else in the room with him. I think he's speaking as someone who's accomplished enough from within Judaism that he feels he can speak on behalf of the Pharisees to an extent. I think it's just him and Jesus, but Rabbi, we know. He begins with his own knowledge rather than acknowledging his lack of it. He, he positions himself as the judge over the situation, and I'll render a verdict on this, thank you very much, rather than someone who's, who knows they, they have no ability to do such a thing, you know, and comes to Jesus with empty hands. And this is why Jesus responds to this question that's not a question in the way that he does, as we'll see in a minute. Jesus is directly responding with his words to this presupposition on the part of Nicodemus that he has the ability to stand as judge and to determine what's happening in this situation. It also turns out he's not very good at being a judge because he describes Jesus as a teacher, and that's kind of where he draws the line. He implies, are, are you more than that? But he won't even ask it, you know. He doesn't even refer to Jesus as a potential prophet, much less the prophet for which Israel had been waiting since the time of Moses, like we talked about in chapter 1. And, and like the crowd at the end of chapter 2, his profession is mostly based on the signs that Jesus has 
accomplished. Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs. And as we go on in John, what we'll come to see is that faith that's flowing out of like, do more signs, right? Faith that's primarily flowing out of the signs and wanting to see more signs is problematic, but we'll get to that later on. The point here is simply, here we have a living example of the crowd in the text. Nicodemus is the problem exemplified. He shares in their fundamental problem of sin, and he also shares in his inability to see how deep that rabbit hole really goes. He fundamentally misunderstands the nature of the problem. And it's because he thinks too much of himself, and we'll continue to see more of that as we as we go, not only that, but he simultaneously positions himself as judge over the matter. So what's to be done about it? Well, it's here that we move from the problem identified, which is depravity, the problem exemplified, Nicodemus, to now the problem rectified. Jesus doesn't just leave Nicodemus. He doesn't just leave us in our depravity without any hope. Starting in verse 3. The problem rectified is really verses 3 through 8. Um, in terms of the structure. But starting in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you see how Jesus' response to Nicodemus' question cuts directly to Nicodemus' arrogant assumption that he stands as judge over Jesus, over the matter that he can kind of determine this for himself. He essentially, he's essentially saying, Nicodemus, you claim to be able to see what's happening. But that requires a work much greater than you realize. It requires new birth to see things of the kingdom. You know, the word born again has the sense of regeneration, a completely new life. So the idea is, do you want to know how radical of a transformation you have to have in order to see and understand things of the kingdom of God? John doesn't use this kingdom language very much. Matthew uses it a lot. John doesn't use it very much. And when he does use it, it's intentionally provocative. So, so I don't think as much, much even to the reader as it is to those who are hearing it. So for Nicodemus, he's hearing Jesus use this kingdom language, and it's intentionally provocative. Why? Because for Nicodemus, as a first century Jew, his idea of, of the kingdom would have been entirely future. The future kingdom at the end, when God comes to make all things right at the end of the age. But Jesus starts with language of a kingdom that we can be born into now that goes on for all eternity. Not just eternal life at the end of the age, but eternal life that starts right now and that continues forever, that you can have now. Hope that you can have now. And we'll talk more about that next week on Easter Sunday because this text leads right into John 3.16. Bring a friend, right? These texts show us our unique need for Christ. Our friends uniquely need Jesus. This is why we planted a church. Grab one of these on your way out. Distribute them, friends, coworkers, neighbors, that they might hear of this life that starts now and goes on for all eternity. But we should also note, you know, born again, born again, right? This word again can mean also from above. There's a couple different ways of translating. Born again, like for a second time, born from above. I think John means both. He obviously means again, the second time, right? Like, that's how Nicodemus understands it. Uh, Jesus does not contradict him. But the means of this new birth, like the way it happens, comes from above, not from within. And the problem of the crowds, you know, the problem of Nicodemus, 
is that they think as it relates to this central problem that they have, that they can find a solution from within. From within. They can seek transformation from within. They can turn within themselves to find the strength to follow the law. And this is like, look inside yourself. Look inside yourself. This is a key distinction because 99% of what you'll hear makes you right in this world, whether it's a book that you're reading to your child or something that you're watching with them, especially um, modern storytelling for children, but even for adults. 99% of what you will hear is that you can be made right if you look from within. Find the God within you. Look inside of yourself. There are entire industries now that are geared around helping people look within themselves to find the answers, but Jesus' words here make it clear that such an approach simply leaves you right where you started. Right where you were to begin with. It's a futile enterprise because it's, it's the case that it was our desires, you know? It was our hearts that brought us into whatever problems we're facing or trying to solve to begin with. We wanted something else, right? That caused this problem. So when you attempt to then look within yourself to solve that problem, you're doubling down on the root of the problem. It's like someone drowning who's trying to find the solution to that problem under the water. You know, it's, it's someone who's burning trying to solve the problem with more fire. And, and so it shouldn't surprise us that Nicodemus hears this and he gets a little flustered. You know, um, it sounds very unintuitive, counterintuitive to his ears. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Okay, look, I don't think at all that Nicodemus actually thinks that that's what Jesus is saying. We should not take him crudely literal. He's a very educated man. Uh, he knows that Jesus is speaking symbolically. He's not, you know, we have this children's book where Jesus is having this conversation and Nicodemus is doing this and there's a thought bubble and it's like, you know, his mom giving birth and he's wondering how that works, you know. I don't think that's what's happening, but I do think he's saying that he has no idea, like saying he has no idea at all what Jesus means. And he's using this language, so why does he say it this way? He's being scornful. It's language of contempt. It's sarcasm toward the entire notion. This idea that in order to see the kingdom, you have to be entirely born again, regeneration, new birth. This idea seems offensive right out of the outset to Nicodemus. It continues to be what makes the gospel offensive today. The gospel isn't offensive because of the cultural things that we attach to it. Although, the problem is, sometimes we do. We do talk all about, as Christians, our preferences or our rights, and they become stumbling blocks. So we can't even get to conversations about Jesus with our non-believing friends because we lay out all these stumbling blocks, some of which I talked about earlier. But when I say the gospel is offensive, I mean that when we do get to talking about Jesus, when we do present the gospel, the gospel itself is offensive because it tells us that not only do we have a deficiency, but unless our hearts are completely transformed, completely, completely made new, completely changed, we can't know God. And it tells us we can't do that ourselves. It's easy to be offended by the notion that we can't look within ourselves to save ourselves. And Nicodemus in particular, like I said before, he's made quite a living teaching others that if they just follow the law fastidiously enough, carefully enough, with a fine enough tooth comb, they can save themselves with hearts pure enough. And I think it's easy to organize church right now in such a way that if we continue, that continues to teach, you know, if, 
If you just obey God well enough and keep your hearts pure enough, he'll be pleased with you. I think some of the backlash against gospel-centeredness in the church, you know, this idea that it's actually gospel graces that shape your heart to new desires. It's actually the gospel at work in you that changes you and transforms you. It's not like white knuckling. Like the gospel isn't the thing that gets you into the kingdom while the way you make progress in the kingdom is working hard than to do all the right things so that God can be pleased with you. That's not it. It's that the gospel actually is the way in which you make progress. The reason that's a controversial idea, I think in part is because we're offended by the notion that we can't do it. That's why we push back against that. And I think it's part of the reason Nicodemus has a pretty clear backlash to what Jesus says here in John 3. What's interesting to me is knowing Nicodemus's heart, knowing that this is offensive to him, what does Jesus do? Well, rather than softening, you know, rather than attempting to soften his, his words for Nicodemus, rather than like attempting to make Nicodemus more comfortable by downplaying the kind of transformation and saying, oh, okay, okay, you know, admittedly that... That sounds a bit extreme. Let me try again. He actually ups the ante. You know, like, he doesn't just double down. He makes the language even more extreme. Jesus answered, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus repeats what he already said as a response to this, but he adds a couple of different components that actually, like, doesn't just double down, but strengthens his words. First, he changes see the kingdom to enter the kingdom. And that ups the ante quite a bit because it means, you know, those who are not born again, just to be clear, it's not just that you can't see, his, see the kingdom of God at work now. It's that you will not, you'll be shut out of the kingdom. And that is a theme that Jesus will continue across all four Gospels, continue to teach across all four Gospels. You'll be shut out unless you're born again. But second, he says that unless one is born of, now he says, water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. What does that mean? A couple of classic ways to understand this has been um, some take water to mean physical birth. All right, that in other words, yes, everybody's born physically with water, amniotic fluid, I think is the idea. But unless you also have a spiritual birth, you can't enter the kingdom. But I understand the sentiment, but everyone I've read pushes back here because there does not appear to be any first century source at all, whether it's Greco-Roman or Jewish, that in which we find the word water as a symbol of physical birth. So it's very, very, very unlikely that that's the case. Some people say he's talking about baptism, um, but I don't think so. That would make Jesus' words to Nicodemus and his question here um, really out of place. As we'll see, in the, as we'll see next week, and, and we'll talk about it in a minute, Jesus expects that because Nicodemus is a teacher of the Old Testament, he should be able to know this concept of new birth if he understood what he was reading. So for him to now be talking about an ordinance that he hasn't yet given the church that will signify something he hasn't yet done as an answer to Nicodemus' question is very highly unlikely. So here's what I think is happening. So in our text on, on Good Friday, this, Friday, this coming Friday, Jesus will flat out tell Nicodemus that if, if he truly understood the Old Testament, these things shouldn't be unfamiliar to him. What does that mean? It means we can find the answer to what Jesus means by water and the Spirit in the Old Testament. And when we look there, what we find is this picture of exactly what Jesus describes. 
You know, the Old Testament prophets routinely spoke of a time in which God would pour out his spirit on his people. We end our membership covenant at Gospel Life Church quoting one of those many passages. The Old Testament also frequently, in those same contexts, uses water as a symbol for cleansing from unrighteousness. So we come to places like Ezekiel chapter 36. Tell me if this is not the exact same concept that Jesus is referencing. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. New birth, new life, right? Water and the spirit cleansing through the spirit's work of bringing a a completely changed Desire and heart that now gives way to being able to follow God. And then in the next chapter, if that's not a lot enough, that's Ezekiel 36. You get to Ezekiel 37, and what do you find? The valley of dry bones in which the Spirit gives life to dry, dry dead bones, signifying what the Spirit would do in bringing regeneration to God's people. Regeneration, new life. And what is it that Jesus immediately says after telling us you have to be born of water and spirit? That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, listen, natural man, man in our former state, man who's represented by a valley of dry bones, cannot understand the things of the Lord. As Paul writes about in in 1 Corinthians, that takes a work of the spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. In other words, this new birth, being from above and not from within, is created by the Spirit of God. And you know what? You can't control him. You can't manipulate him. You're not in charge of him. But you can see the evidences of his work. And one of those evidences is is the new life that he creates by faith in Jesus for all who believe. There's this cultural component, you know, It's really steeped in our culture of like new birth being signifying essentially like turning over a new leaf. That like I've been born again, so now I've been cleansed of all my sins, now I have a second chance. This is my second chance, and I'm gonna turn over a new leaf now. I found forgiveness, and now there's the second chance. Turn over a new leaf, work really hard. You see this kind of like it's it's ingrained in the way we think about religion in our culture. See this in, in like, oh brother, where art thou? where these brilliant film in which these three guys are being chased by the, from the law. And one of them, as they're being chased by, by the law, has this experience of being drawn into bap- this, this call to baptism. And he's baptized and he comes up. And his two other convict friends are looking with like wide eyes and gaping mouths. And they're like, what happened? And he's like, I've been born again. You know, my sins have been forgiven. I have a new start in life. You know, and that's the idea. I have a new start in life. He's, he says, he says, all my sins are forgiven, including that Piggly Wiggly I knocked over. And they said, we thought you was innocent of them charges. He said, well, I lied. And I've been forgiven of that sin too. You know, the Lord has nothing on me. You know, so this idea is, now I have a new, a new chance, a new start. All the sins forgiven, a, new, a second chance. But it goes much further than that. This isn't simply like, okay, you've been forgiven, now you better behave. This isn't like you've been released from the prison, but you know, if you, if you, if you mess up again, you're coming right back in here. This is completely transformed life. 
That's what Jesus is describing to Nicodemus. So Carson writes, apparently Nicodemus had not thought of the Old Testament passages in this way. If he was like some other Pharisees, he was too confident in the quality of his own obedience to think he needed much repentance at all, let alone to have his whole life cleansed and his heart transformed to be born again. Isn't this describing us? Right, so the problem identified is depravity. The problem exemplified? Yeah, Nicodemus in this text, the woman at the well, other people that Jesus has interactions with between chapters two and four. But also us. Because isn't it true of us that we can often be too confident in the quality of our own obedience to think we need much repentance at all, let alone to have our whole life cleansed and heart transformed to be born again? So then the question is, right, it's easy to, to hear this, to hear this in the text and then think, well, but wait a minute. Maybe I'm discouraged because the problem identified is depravity. There's nothing I can do to save myself. The problem exemplified is me. You know, I'm not, I'm not in control. Like, the, the problem rectified is a work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work, and I can't control him. So how can I attain this new birth? What, what do I do? Like, how, how can I attain it? I'm unable to accomplish this in my own effort, my own strength, so what do I do? And this is, you know, this is why in the next verse, Nicodemus begins by asking, how can these things be? We'll get there on Friday. I think it's better translated, how can this happen? But I'll stop preaching on that now. Come on Friday. This is the right question. Like, how can this happen? How can we attain this life? Jesus will tell us exactly how, exactly what it means in the next set of verses, in which he'll tell, him, tell us on Friday, the Son of Man came to be lifted up, that we might have this kind of life. Come and hear it proclaimed this Friday, but also come to the table now and hear it proclaimed. Come to the table now this morning if you're a non-believer and hear that the way in which the Spirit does this work in you is by pointing you to what Christ did that you could never do for yourself. That the problem identified is depravity that we're all, and the problem exemplified is all of us, so we're all under the curse of judgment. We all deserve God's judgment and wrath. None of us deserve life with God. Jesus did. But Jesus came that his body might be broken and his blood might be shed, that we might have life in him. So if you're a believer, come and proclaim that truth to yourself again, that you have been saved, not by your works and not by your efforts. That you turn to Jesus, not for some other thing that you've made central, but rather because of your deep need for him to do this for you, to reconcile to you, you to the Father, through his work accomplished for you, if you're here and you're a non-believer, this message is for your forgiveness and a transformed heart, a truly changed heart. You know, and this meal is for believers, so we invite you, get up, come forward, just, just observe. You can, you can look at the table. Don't partake. Walk past. You know, like some people feel pressure. Don't feel pressure. We don't want you to take. Just come and, and look and, and walk past. Ask questions but believe in his name, his mercies that he gives you at the cross, this new life that he offers so that you can join us and actually partake with us this morning. So let's come, before, come to the table now and take these elements with us back to our seats.